Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our way through God's Word. Now, Easter is just a few weeks away, and as we approach the Easter season, Pastor Kirk is sharing a message entitled, A Conversation That Changed the World, from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Let me invite you to join us on Resurrection Sunday as we spend a time together just studying God's Word and worshiping. If you need more information about Calvary Baptist Church, you can find that at calvaryfayetteville.com or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. You can also call us at 479-442-4634. We would love to meet face-to-face to be able to share together as we serve God. Again, Pastor Kirk is sharing from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Let's listen together. Well, one commentator has observed and has written these words. Listen. Billions, billions of words are spoken every minute. From casual and informal greetings to random mutterings. But every now and then, mere words change the very shape of the world and alter all of our lives. Conversations are so abundant in number, diverse in material, and infinite in degree that we as a whole do not look at how these interactions and emotions dictate our life. Some are dramatic, but most are mundane. We don't have any idea most of the time when a life-changing conversation is going to take place. It may seem mundane. It may seem just normal. It may seem very unimportant. But you never know when a simple conversation is going to change the very trajectory and direction of your life. Some of you have had some of those conversations. Maybe a routine visit to a doctor's office. And by the time that visit is over with, your doctor is sharing with you news that will change your life forever. We have all had those conversations with family members and friends. Simple, everyday, mundane conversations. Not realizing that within a few days we will look back and that will have been the last conversation we ever had with that loved one. And we didn't know it was the last conversation at the time. It's amazing how the power of one conversation can redirect someone's entire being and their eternal destiny. I want to share some simple thoughts, very simple thoughts, but life-changing thoughts from one of the most familiar passages in all of God's Word. In fact, it is uh, a passage that contains what is the most memorized, the first learned, and maybe even the best known verse in all of the Bible. It was a conversation between Jesus 
and a man that we know as Nicodemus who came to Jesus late one night. You might say that it was the original Nick at night. (laughs) Just a thought, just a thought. Before we read about three verses, let me set the context for you so that we are sure we understand it. Jesus began his public ministry, it seems somewhat reluctantly, back in chapter 2 at a wedding feast in Cana, very close to where he grew up. It didn't appear that he wanted to start his ministry there, but his mom kind of put him on the spot. And what did he do? He turned water into wine, and all of a sudden, his renown was now going public. And so uh, that began not far uh, from his hometown and just a little while before the event we read about in chapter 3. Sometimes afterwards, uh, he travels from the northern part of, uh, of Israel up in Galilee down to uh, Judea, down to Jerusalem where the temple was. And when he came into the temple, he found it full of money changers. It was a house of profit. It was something that was repulsive to him and offensive to his father. And so for the first of at least two times, he cleanses the temple. That means he drove out the money changers. And this led to a public encounter with the Jewish leaders. They did not appreciate his actions, or his words. After this confrontation in the temple, Nicodemus thought to challenge Jesus in a more private setting. So he comes to him under the cover of darkness. And it did not go well for Nicodemus. I know that you have probably read this story and you see Nicodemus as a very interested seeker who wants to know more, but I want to suggest to you he was not just a casual seeker. He was not someone who was probably genuinely looking for what Jesus had to say. He was very likely the one selected to try to shut the man up. So he comes And he has this encounter with Jesus only to find out that the most fundamental motives and purposes of God revealed in the Old Testament have totally been distorted by these Jewish leaders and by this now uh, Jewish religion that had been changed into something so far different than what Moses and others intended. So who was this man named Nicodemus? Scripture 2, or verse 2 of our text, gives us a couple of truths. He is a Pharisee, and he is described as a ruler of the Jews. We know the Pharisees, right? They were strict keepers of the law. They were between the two parties, religious sects, that led the country, Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the conservatives. They were the ones who held not just tenaciously to the Old Testament law given by God through Moses, 
but they had, had filled that with so many traditions and add-ons that they had elevated the teachings of man to be equal with the teachings of God to the point that a religious Jew had 613 points to the law that he or she would have to keep every single day. It was awful. It was burdensome. But these men, often wealthy men, were held in high regard and as models and examples of what it meant to be a righteous Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. John chapter 7 explains that he was a member of the Sanhedrin court. These were 70 men plus the high priest, who were the supreme court for Israel in that day and time. They made the rules, they made the laws. The Sanhedrin was the upper crust all the way around. They were the most powerful men in the land. Not only that, but when you study history, Nicodemus is a unique name. The Jewish historian Josephus has studied the history and he knew the history and he found that there was another historian who had studied deeply uh, this particular uh, name and found that between 330 B.C., three centuries before Christ, to two centuries after Christ, to 2000, or excuse me, uh, 280, these 500 years, that there were only four people named Nicodemus, and they all came from the same powerful family, the Gurion family. The name Nicodemus means conqueror of the people. So Nicodemus was not just your everyday ordinary person wanting to meet more uh, personally with Jesus. He was a man of power, very likely chosen as the one to speak for all the Pharisees and all the Sanhedrin court to, to finally get some kind of resolution with Jesus. Now keep in mind, this is early in Jesus' ministry. He hasn't even called and commissioned all of his disciples yet. He has not preached his Sermon on the Mount yet. Things are just getting started, and in the eyes of these leaders, it's not starting off on the right foot. So what did he learn from his encounter with Jesus? Well, Jesus spoke to him about a new birth. He said, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, it's not your physical birth, which, by the way, is what all Jews, and especially Pharisees, had banked everything on, their, their physical uh, descendancy from Abraham, that their birth is what made them special. But Jesus said, you need a new birth. You need to be born again, a totally new concept. And this new birth had to be a spiritual birth of the water and of the Spirit, the cleansing of the Spirit of God. This is the only way to be truly born again and a part of God's family. And it is a new birth, a spiritual birth through God's Son. Son. 
Jesus refers to we uh, here in verse 11 and our. Who is the we? If you read uh, Bible commentaries, you find a lot of different ideas, but I think he's talking about himself, the Father, the Holy Spirit. He's talking about we, the Trinity, we, the prophets of the Old Testament. Those of us that know the truth of God understand we are saying to you, you must be born again. And he even gives an illusion. He reaches back to the Old Testament and talks about and reminds them of when the people of Israel were wandering through the wilderness and being bitten by fiery serpents. Remember that story? It's a very short story. And they were dying. And God told Moses, you shape a brazen serpent, put it on a pole and lift it up. And those who look to that fiery serpent on that pole will be healed. Now, I realize that raises a lot of questions. Why serpent? Why lift it up on this pole? But understand, it was pointing forwards to Jesus seeing the end of his earthly ministry when he would be lifted up on a cross. And all who look to him will be um, cleansed, will be healed, will be forgiven. So all of that has taken place, and we get to these words. Follow it with me, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Why do I call this a conversation that changed the world? Well, for the obvious reason that it contains the greatest verse, the gospel in one sentence, one verse, that it contains the most memorized, the most quoted, the best known verse in all of the Bible, that it contains what is the message of Scripture itself, John 3.16. That verse tells, number one, of the greatest love ever expressed. For God so loved the world. God is the initiator of all relationships with man. We often refer to people being seekers We often refer to man's attempt to know God. But understand, if it were not for God creating us in such a way, with that God-shaped vacuum within, with that emptiness that can only be filled with something that is unearthly, that is transcendent, that is beyond life as we know it, nobody would be hungering and thirsting for God at all. Were it not for God loving us first, we would never love him according to the scriptures in 1 John. 
This is the greatest love that has ever been expressed. It is the love God has for you. For God so loved the world. Notice and understand that this love is undeserved. There's nothing that makes you lovely to God. There's nothing about you that appeals to him. There's no works that you've done that has drawn his favor towards you. There's nothing in the world that causes us to earn or to deserve the love and the favor and the grace and the mercy of God. It is because God has chosen to love this world. God loves you. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God shows his love. It's not only undeserved, it's unlimited. There's no extent to it. The world, there, there's no one left out of God's love. God desires that you know him. It's unlimited in its scope. Now let me make one explanation because I have read this verse wrong for most of my life and so have you. We read, for God so loved. And that little word so is the part that we get wrong. God loves you so much. That's what we say to the little ones in children's. God loves you so much. And he does. But so is not telling us how much. He's not saying, I just love you so much I can't stand it. No, he's telling us how he loves us. He's telling us in the manner in which he loves us. But God so loved that he gave. This is the way he loved. This is how he loved. He loved us so he gave his life for us. Unlimited, unmeasured, unmeasured. Do you remember that old song, The Love of God, written by a man by the name of Frederick Lehman? The third verse of that song, of that old hymn, were words, according to the uh, story, were found scrawled on the wall of an insane asylum whose occupant had died. After further research, it was found that it was written by an 11th century Jewish poet. The third verse goes like this. Let me just read it to you rather than sing it to you, all right? Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe? by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure 
the saints an angel's song. This conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus tells us of the greatest love ever expressed. Number two, it tells us of the greatest sacrifice ever made, as we've already touched on it. God loved in this way. God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. Love doesn't take. Love doesn't grab. Love doesn't reach out and take hold of. Love gives itself away. Understand that this great sacrifice paid by Jesus on the cross was not where the sacrifice started. It started in eternity past when God determined that his son would be a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And it continued when he gave his son in human form. Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. God the Father sacrificed a son, and the son sacrificed his life. It was voluntary. Nobody took his life. He laid it down of his own will. It was vicarious. I know that's a word we don't use so much in our daily conversation, but what that means is he did it in our place. We should have been the ones nailed to the cross for our sins, but he died a vicarious death. He took our place. He was our substitute who died for us, and it was victorious. It accomplished God the Father's purposes. We have been sanctified, Hebrews 10.10 tells us, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every other king in history, past or present, has asked for his subjects to die for him if called upon. But this king did not ask his servants to die for him without first of all him dying for his subjects. He is a king who was willing to die for us. The greatest love ever expressed, the greatest sacrifice ever made, and this verse also tells us of the greatest condition ever given, that whoever believes in him. Many people believe in a universal salvation, that ultimately everybody is going to make it to heaven because Jesus died for the world and ultimately everybody is going to be gathered into his family in his eternal home. I want to tell you that that's not true, that that is a lie. It comes from the enemy. Whoever believes in him, that separates men, women, boys, and girls. It is the dividing line that runs right through this auditorium, this worship center this morning. On the one side are those who have believed in him with all of their heart, who've trusted in him as Savior, 
surrendered their lives to him. That's what it means to believe in him. Not intellectual uh, agreement with some uh, verse of scripture, but heart surrender to the truth of that. Whoever believes in him. On the one side are those people, and on the other side are those who have not done that. Who do not believe and trust and surrender and repent. Is that you? You know, it's been said there's really only three things that will keep people out of heaven. One is ignorance of the gospel. They've never heard the truth of God. That's why we appreciate the Gideons so much who share the gospel with people who have never heard the gospel. It's why in those New Testaments, in those Bibles, there printed either in the front or the back is a plan, the plan of salvation from Scripture. But many people have never heard the gospel. And some are going to miss heaven because they're ignorant of the gospel. Now, here's the good news. If you're listening this morning, nobody here is going to miss heaven because you didn't hear the gospel. But there's a second thing that keeps people out of heaven. For those who have heard the gospel, the second reason people reject it is because of sin in their life. There's some sin that they are not willing to turn loose of. Some sin uh, against God that breaks his moral code, his truth and moral law that's found in the Old Testament and new alike. There's some sin that you hang on to that you're not willing to confess and forsake and repent of. Sin keeps some people out of heaven. I remember I had a girlfriend when I was in the seventh grade. She lived about a half a block from our house. Her name was Susan. I was deeply, deeply in love with Susan as much as I could understand whatever that meant when I was a seventh grader. I was concerned about her because her family didn't go to church. I remember sitting on her porch one day and I worked up the nerve to try to share the gospel with her. It was the first time I'd shared the gospel with anybody. And I talked to her about heaven, about hell, about Jesus dying for our sins. And she listened to all that and she said, well, let me tell you, I've got all of that figured out. I was pleasantly pleased to hear that. And she said, this is what I'm going to do. There's too many things in life I want to do. There are things that I'm going to do that I have planned. She's talking about sin. She said, I'm going to live my life the way I want to. I'm going to ignore all of that. And I'm going to have fun. And I'm going to just, just take it all in as much as I can. And then when I'm old and I'm on my deathbed, then I'm going to give my life to Jesus and make it in right at the end. I'm going to be honest with you. I was stupid. I thought that sounded like a pretty good plan. <laughs> How do you answer that? Well, I know a lot of ways to answer it now. Needless to say, she didn't give her life to Christ that day on her front porch. <laughs> I hope she did somewhere down the line. I hope she did. She moved away to North Arkansas. I never saw her again. But there's a lot of people that think 
that they can hang on to their life and live it their way. And sadly, there are some who think that they can pray a simple prayer or walk down an aisle or get baptized or raise their hand while no one is looking and profess Christ and still hang on to sin and still live like they want to. My friend, you can't do that. That's not salvation. It's not salvation. People reject Christ because of their sin, but there's a third reason, and I think it's the one that's the greatest danger of all, and it's pride. It's pride. It's pride. We don't do a lot of public invitations here and walking an aisle and, and that kind of thing. But there are people who out of pride would not walk an aisle in order to surrender their lives to Christ. There are people who through pride won't admit or confess that they need Jesus. That it may be your pride that keeps you from publicly confessing Christ in baptism. Pride. Pride. Whoever believes in him, it's a universal invitation. Whoever. It is urgent. It has to be decided. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, that now is the favorable time, that this is the day of salvation. Proverbs warns us, do not boast about having even one more day, for you do not know what a day may bring. It's urgent. And it is ultimate. It will be the ultimate decider. The ultimate decider. If you don't make it to heaven, it's because you don't want to go to heaven. At least you don't want to enough to surrender yourself. To swallow, or even better, just spit out your pride altogether and come to Christ. It is ultimate. There is salvation in no one else. That's what Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 It is the greatest love ever expressed. It is the greatest sacrifice ever made. It's the greatest condition ever given. And last, it tells of the greatest change ever offered. The greatest change. Those who respond will not perish, but will have eternal life. From darkness to light, from death to life, this change is the greatest change that can ever happen to a person. It's conclusive. They should not perish, but they will have eternal life. It's complete. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. That means something that has never existed before. It is a new 
birth. It's not the remodeling or the revising or some updating of your old life. It is complete and conclusive. The old passes away and the new comes. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And understand it is continual. It is eternal life. It's not temporary life. It's not your best life now. It's your best life for all eternity. And nobody can take that away from you. You know why? Because you're in God's hand. And it being in Jesus' hand and the Father's hand is around that and the Spirit of God is within you, you talk about security. There is no security like that. Only what God has to offer. The greatest change ever offered. And so I ask you, do you have that life today? Do you have it? For God so loved the world, the greatest love, ever expressed, that he gave his one and only son the greatest sacrifice ever made, that whoever believes in him, the greatest condition, or you might say the greatest question ever put before mankind, will not perish, but have eternal life, the greatest change that could ever be made. If you have not done that, if you do not have the security and the peace that comes from knowing Christ in that way, I would encourage you to surrender your life to Jesus right now just to pray and ask his forgiveness. Confess your sin to him and your need of him. Ask him to be your Savior and your Lord. And if you want someone to pray with you about that, after we dismiss today, call on me, call on Pastor Dan. Just talk to someone around you. We'll give you all the help that you need so that you can know and be sure that this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus was actually meant for you here today. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of it. Thank you, Father, for the gospel, the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would give the assurance today that we know you, that we have the peace of a new life, that we will live for you and honor you with our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.